Thank you. You may be seated. I wonder how many of you can maybe relate to a story that the well-known radio Bible teacher and pastor Charles Swindoll tells about the last time he got a spanking from his dad. Um, I'll just let him tell it. Let me just read his account. It goes like this. Dr. Swindoll writes, I remember the last time I got a spanking. I had reached the ripe old and wise age of 13. You know, that's the age where you are amazed that your father has been able to make it in life as uh, well as he has, being so ignorant of your counsel and wise guidance. As a matter of fact, the spanking was actually on my 13th birthday. And in our home, your birthday was the day when you were the king for a day. I remember lying around in bed and on the sofa, barking orders here and there and demanding response. And so my father, from the flower bed outside the window, sensing the need for some correction, called me, Charles. And I said, yeah, which was mistake number one, because in our home, you didn't say, yeah, you said, yes, sir. And then he called my name again, and he said, Charles, come out and help me weed the flower bed. And I said, no, which was mistake number two. He graciously continued his pleading by saying, now don't lie there and act like a three-year-old. Come out and help me weed the flower bed. And I said, Dad, I'm not three, I'm 13. And that's the last thing I remember because, uh, and on that day, because with both hands and both feet, he landed on my body and he did not let go until I was very vigorously weeding the flower bed. Dr. Swindoll is now in his 80s, and he says then, I still remember it even though it was years ago. As we worked together through most of that day, he said to me later at a time that was well chosen, son, I would be less than a good dad if I did not correct you when you disobey. As we turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we want to be reminded that we have a loving heavenly father who disciplines his children. He would be less than a good dad if he did not correct us when we disobey. Keep that in mind as we enter now once again into Hebrews chapter 3. I want to remind you, as I did last week, that this is really part of a section of Scripture that would be best studied in its entirety, beginning with the beginning of chapter 3 and moving on through about verse 11 of chapter 4. And so we're kind of having to chop it up. We're kind of coming into it and then leaving and then coming back to it. And um, we are now picking it up at Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. And we will go to the end of the chapter there, verse 19. And we're just going to stop, but it's going to continue on into chapter 4. Let me remind you also that, um, as I've been telling you, that when we study the book of Hebrews, you need to remember that in a lot of ways, our mindset is so different than the recipients of this book, these Hebrews. That means they were Jews. I believe they were believers, probably a small house church that had entered into faith in Christ. No doubt, not much different than a group like us where we gather together. There are committed believers. There are others who are struggling more with their faith. Maybe there's even a few non-believers among them. But I believe that this book was written uh, to believers And uh, they're struggling because they have some forces coming upon them 
uh, that are making it difficult to follow Christ. Uh, Part of that might have been family members calling them back away from Christ to go back to Judaism, to the old covenant, to following Moses, to trying to keep the law. Don't follow Christ. Don't follow that Nazarene. He's, He's no one. You come back to us. But there was also external pressure at this time, political pressure, um, uh, where Nero is persecuting them. And, and there's a cost to being a Christian. In the second service, Paul Scott, who's involved with our missions here, prayed for the believers in Nigeria um, who are being attacked by Muslims there. Their cows, their cattle are being slaughtered. Their, their uh, women raped. Their, their homes burned. Their businesses bashed in. All right, you tell me. You're living for Christ, and it's going to cost you something. You're going to get your cows killed. You're going to get your business bashed, your wife raped, your your daughters kidnapped. This living for Jesus might not be all it's cracked up to be. And that's a little bit the mindset that you have here. They've entered into a relationship with God through Christ. Now it's starting to cost them something, and they are questioning they're questioning the, the difficulty. They're questioning whether they're going to endure and persevere in this difficult time. Nero is, is beginning his persecution of believers from Rome. And it's just a difficult time. In the like, likewise, likewise, in Nigeria, our missionary Tom Jesserin, they, they are struggling all the time with the believers there. Put down your guns. Put down your machetes. You do not go and retaliate. Yeah, but if we're, as Christians, what, we just take it and we take it and we take it. Yeah, pretty much. We love our enemies. We do things differently than the world does. That's reality. That's not easy. And so when we approach our study of Hebrews, we're... We're recognizing that the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who that is, is challenging them and calling them to continue to walk in faith in Jesus Christ and to not give up. Let's read our text today. We're going to begin in verse 7. We already know that he's been dealing with some theological issues that are bugging them. One is they think that angels might be greater than Christ. And so he spent most of the first two chapters saying, look, Christ is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He began chapter 3 by uh, arguing. I don't mean like bickering, but I mean his argument is that that Moses, who is the most highly thought of of all of the leaders of, of ancient Israel, no one was greater than Moses. God spoke to him face to face that Christ is even greater than Moses. You see, they loved Moses and, and they were fascinated with angels and, and they understood their Old Testament and they just weren't for sure now if Christ was really worth it. And so he's coming at them with these arguments that they need to hear. Christ is superior. We recognize that in the first six verses, he was using that argument about uh, Moses being greater, and it's almost like it tripped in his mind then a reminder that out of Moses and the children of Israel comes an illustration, and the writer, as he's writing, talking about Moses being greater than Christ, is evidently reminded of the children of Israel following Moses in the desert, and he moves into the second of five warning passages. There are five specific warning passages in Hebrews. And at verse 7, he moves off that topic of Moses, but he uses the word therefore. See that therefore, talking about Moses, talking about encouraging them to persevere, to persevere in the hope of their faith. He then says, and let's read our text, beginning with verse 7, chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, 
Now he's going to quote from Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall never, they shall not enter my rest. He stops quoting Psalm 95 now, and in verse 12, he turns with further exhortation to the church. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, quoting Psalm 95 again, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16, back to talking to the church. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It's an interesting passage of scripture, and it is a warning passage. And I want you to see that the writer begins by warning them of a story from the past. So so we begin with a warning from the past. You need to understand a couple things about this and their understanding. But before we do that, I was... I was taken by the way the writer introduces verse 7. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he's going to quote from verse, the end of verse 7 through verse 11 from Psalm 95. And before we look at that and, and look at how the Hebrew believers would have understood that passage, I want you to recognize that the writer could have said, David said, if David wrote Psalm 95, we're not 100% sure. Or the psalmist said, but he says to them, the Holy Spirit says, and I thought it was worth stopping because that is a great little anecdotal evidence of the inspiration of scripture right there. So that's why I put in your notes, as he gives them this warning from the past, the first thing we see is who's the speaker, who it is that is talking to them. And it is None other than the Holy Spirit, he says. The Holy Spirit says, parentheses, through the psalmist. But that reminds us of a couple things about the Holy Spirit and inspiration. First of all, notice in your notes, I just give you a little list here as we go. He is a person. He's not an impersonal force. You see, he is speaking. The Holy Spirit is speaking. He is a person. It's a reference to the personhood of the second member of the Godhead. God is a triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the third member of the Godhead, is how we normally put it, okay? And so here we have the Holy Spirit speaking. He says he's a person, not just an impersonal force. Secondly, he is the very source of Scripture. When the writer of Hebrews wants these Jewish believers to focus on the Word of God, he doesn't even reference who the author is. He just says, the Holy Spirit says. And that lines up absolutely clearly with what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, where he says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Paul talked to Timothy about these men being guided by the breath of the Holy Spirit, being, being inspired by God, led along and inspired. So it's kind of like when the Holy Spirit had the place to himself, no scripture got written. When the Holy Spirit had a man of God who was under his direction and wrote, then the psalmist wrote down what the, the Holy Spirit wanted. He's talking about the scripture here, led of the Holy Spirit. I think that is a great reminder that this is just not an ordinary book. This is an inspired book written by the Holy Spirit. Together, the Holy Spirit, through men of God, wrote the text of Scripture. Number three, he was active before the incarnation. A lot of people, in, even in churches in our area, don't believe in the Trinity, and they're Jesus only. But here you have an active member of the Godhead, even before Christ in his incarnation. If it was David, who was the psalmist here, whoever the psalmist was for sure, when he wrote Psalm 95, that happened long before Christ. So there's the speaker. The speaker is the Holy Spirit. He then moves into the scripture. It's Psalm 95, and he's wanting to use this as a challenge from their past. I'm warning you, let me remind you, and they knew their history. Kind of like we know about Abraham Lincoln, and we're familiar, they would have really known this passage. When they were, when he was writing to them about this, and he began to quote Psalm 95, you need to understand that this was very familiar to them. In fact, most of them had it memorized. You see this Psalm 95, and by the way, let's just turn there and let's read it because it it reads very similarly as a a direct quote here, but I want to point something out in the passage to you. So this Psalm 95 passage, and interestingly enough, in Psalm 95, it's verses 7 through 11, just like in Hebrews chapter 3, it's verses 7 to 11, and the chapter divisions and Verse breakdowns of scripture are man-made, not inspired by the Holy Spirit. I just thought that was interesting. Um, But as the As the Holy Spirit, the writer uses the scripture from Psalm 95 to confront and to encourage these believers. He's talking about the scripture that is Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Let's pick it up back at verse 6 because you can see it's God's people to whom he's writing. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now at the end of verse 7 is the quote that is quoted in Hebrews. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation. And I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So it's a very confrontive passage of Scripture. So let's just think about how differently the Hebrews would have received this passage than we. Most of us had no idea. If if your Bible, and I have a relatively inexpensive paperback New King James translation Bible that I'm using for this series. um, Most of us, if our Bible, and this one does, indent and italicize the section in Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 11, we would have had no idea that he was quoting Scripture. The Hebrew believers would have known immediately the passage of Scripture that he was quoting, and they would have known that it was Psalm 95. And we're looking at Psalm 95 now, and because that was their call to prayer at the synagogue every Saturday. Before they read the Scriptures, they would corporately recite together this very passage of Scripture. So, like, what's the most familiar verse that we all know and could quote together. You tell me. Ready? John 3.16. Yeah, we all know. For God so loved the world, right? We say it. It just flows off our lips and it's almost meaningless to us. 
Excellent. A, 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 a tremendous passage of Scripture reminding us of Christ's love for us and what he did for us. Well, the Hebrew believers, the way that we could say John 3.16 is the way that the Hebrew believers would have said this section of Psalm 95. Every Sabbath, before they read the Scriptures, corporately the congregation would quote together, and, it, and it's really good. Do not harden your hearts. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial, in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, and so on. And they would recite this to remind themselves to not make the mistake of the past. So they understand, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews understand exactly what the author is doing. He's reminding them of a story from history that they're very familiar with that they need to use as a wake-up call. There's something else that's kind of interesting, and I'm still looking at Psalm 95 here, but in verse 8, it says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, and then even though this is an inexpensive little Bible, it's got a little letter A next to it, and then it goes on and it says, as in the day of trial, there's a little letter B in the wilderness, and the footnote is, Psalm 95, 8, that in, and what it is, is that in, in some translations, it would be namely the Septuagint, which was a a Greek translation of the Old Testament that is likely what the Hebrews believers were using, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. For those words in verse 8, where it says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and on the day of trial, it actually in the footnote says, or Meribah or Massa. Meribah or Massa. Maybe your Bible has that or your study Bible shows that. Well, what in the world is that? We have no idea what Meribah and Massa is. And, but the Hebrew believers would have understood immediately and they would have understood immediately the stories that were represented there. Those were geographical locations named by Moses for their disobedience and their rebellion. And so let's look up and let's just see a little bit from the Old Testament and remind ourselves what God had done for Israel, okay? So the speaker is the Holy Spirit. He's reminding them this is from the Holy Spirit. Let me quote Psalm 95, the scripture Psalm 95. They knew it well. They quoted it corporately every Saturday night. When he quoted it, it would, they would have understood and identified immediately with Old Testament stories of Moses and the children of Israel in the desert. Let's look at a couple of those, and let's just think about God's people and what was going on with them. Exodus chapter 17 we'll look at, and we'll look at Numbers 14. This won't take us long. So if you turn back, and Exodus is the second book in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and go to chapter 17. Let's look at this. Now, before we do, let's just remind ourselves. Remember that One of the reasons that Moses was so highly esteemed is that he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They immediately had begun to see God's power at work in their lives. You have to have this straight in your mind. The Hebrew believers would have. They recognized that when they were in Egypt, starting with the 10 plagues, I mean, what? That was a monstrous demonstration of the power of God the 10 plagues. And then on the night of the Passover, and they leave and they exit. And Pharaoh says, get out of here. And Moses leads them out. What do the Egyptians do? They grab their jewelry and throw all their jewelry at them as they're leaving, trying to go, go. And they enrich them with all of their jewelry so that they had great resource of gold and silver as they left the country. 
And not only that, they get three days' journey out in the desert. Pharaoh changes his mind. He comes running after them. God is present in a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He's there. Moses is giving direction. They're trapped. They're fearful. They witness the parting of the sea. They walk across on dry ground. They turn around and look, and they see Pharaoh's army being closed in and drowned by the seawater. I mean, what a tremendous demonstration of the power of God. These are special people. God has a plan. He's taking them somewhere. And do you know that if they had done what God said to do, that it was only about two weeks journey for them across the desert to get into the promised land, into Canaan, into the place of their rest? Two weeks. And not only that, while they were going, when they got thirsty, God provided water out of the rock. When they were hungry, he put manna on the ground, which knew, was nutritious enough to sustain them. When they got hungry for meat, he caused the east wind to blow and blew in the quail. And not only that, think about this. For 40 years, do you recall that God did not let their clothes wear out? See, it was because of their disobedience. They went across the desert and they... They get right up to the edge of Canaan. They send in the 12 spies. Ten of them say, we can't do this. They're, we're grasshoppers in their sight. We're just grasshoppers. Joshua and Caleb say, we can do this. They end up getting to go in 40 years later. What were they doing? They were doubting in unbelief the promise and plan of God for blessing them. They were right there, and the plan of God was go in, take the land. He said, we can't take the land. Yes, you can take the land. I'm telling you to take the land, God says. We don't believe what you say. We'll trust our own eyes. We'll not walk by faith. All of this is going through the mind of the Hebrews believers. And you think about your clothes not wearing out for 40 years then. God turns them around. They walk in a big circle. You talk about God being faithful, giving you food, giving you water, giving you meat. Having his presence right there in the form of a cloud and fire. And then every morning you wake up. You guys, you guys get in trouble with your wives for wearing the same old thing all the time. These guys wore the same thing for 40 years. But think about it for a minute. You get up in the morning, you pull on your pants, you put on your shirt, you put on your jacket. And you look at, and you smile to yourself and you said, I've been wearing this for 37 years. And then you pull on your sandals and they're no more worn out than the day you put them on 37 years before. Don't you think you're supposed to get something out of that? Don't you think you're supposed to say, God has been faithful to us. God has taken care of us. But let's read what their attitude really was and why it was for 40 years that that generation had to die off in the desert. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, look what it says. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, appropriately named, according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
Verse 4, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod which you struck, with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called, here it is. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, which is quoted in Psalm 95, because of the contention of the children of Israel, because of their contention, their rebellious spirit, their lack of faith, their hardness of heart. And because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is God here or not? And we get really critical, don't we? But how often do we say, is God answering my prayers or not? Lord, what's going on? I don't understand my life. Are you going to come and rescue me or not? And they were really thirsty, and they didn't see any means of water. And so they were wondering, Lord, do you really have us in the right place right now? And all Moses had to do is hit the rock with his stick, and the water bubbled. It happened again later in Numbers 20 at the end of their time. And this is at the beginning. At the end of their time, and Moses lost his temper that time. After all these times of watching God's faithfulness, after all these years of your clothes and your shoes not wearing out, do you still not see that God is faithful? And he hit the rock twice with his staff in disobedience, and it cost him his entrance into the promised land. It's a very sad moment in Moses' life. It's a reminder to us men as well that nothing good ever happens when we lose our tempers. Let's go to Numbers chapter 14 and and just look at a couple more things here, and then we'll get back to Hebrews. Numbers chapter 14, what we're doing right now is we are understanding and we are teaching ourselves what we don't immediately understand when we read the passage, which the Hebrew believers, the Hebrews who received the letters, would have immediately understood all of this stuff. They would have understood... Meribah, and they would have understood Psalm 95, and they would have understood the story of the water and why Moses named it that. And they would have understood the hard hearts of their forefathers. And now in Numbers, and now in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, look what it says. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. That's unbelievable. I mean, the faithfulness of God is seen every day in the cloud, in the fire, in the manna, in their clothing not wearing out, in the waters parted, that God has provided for them, God has protected them, and they want to go back to Egypt? Egypt represents slavery, bondage to sin. Egypt represents everything that is contrary to the blessing of God in their lives, and they want to go back. Somehow their hearts have distorted the reality of what their lives were really like there. Let your eyes go to Numbers chapter 14 here where we're open to verses 20 through 23. And let's add this to it. And then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. 
but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Verse 22, Numbers 14, because all these men who have seen my glory and they've seen the signs which I did in Egypt, the food, the water, the parting of the sea, the not wearing out of their clothes, the protection, they have seen all the signs, the plagues that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test. Now these, look what it says, 10 times and have not heeded my voice. They certainly, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. So God says, this is at least the 10th time that out of your unbelief, You've tested me. What, is, what was the testing? The testing was, we don't know if God is good to us. We don't know if God really is answering prayer. We don't know if God's really going to provide for us. And so now we go back to Hebrews chapter 3, and it's, it's, we understand much better the mindset of these Hebrew believers. They understood all of these stories, and now they're living through the kinds of circumstances that are making them say, I don't know if Christ is real. I don't know if God is answering prayer. I don't know if this salvation that I entered into is for real. I don't see God changing my life. I don't see God solving my problems. I just got my business windows shattered. I just got my barn burned. I just lost my job because of following Christ. I had to hide. We had to hide our family so we didn't end up in the Colosseum being eaten by lions. And you're telling me it's worth it to follow Christ? And he's saying, yes. Do not harden your heart. Do not stop short of the blessing of God that he has coming for you. It's worth it. And so that's the story Okay, that's the, the warning from the past is a story spoken by the Holy Spirit through the psalmist in Psalm 95. The scripture is Psalm 95, and it's a reminder, number two under letter B. Not only is this a reminder from Israel's history, number one, but it is a reminder that history can repeat itself. That's his whole point. That's his point to the Hebrews believers. History can repeat itself. It's a reminder from Israel's history, and it's a reminder that history can repeat itself. Dwight Pentecost, a a Bible scholar of years ago out of Dallas Seminary wrote, the writer of Hebrews appeals to his recipients not to become discontented because of their suffering and not to let discontentment give way to open rebellion lest they, like their forefathers, lose the blessings of the privileges that now were available to them as believers. R. Kent Hughes, a pastor out of Wheaton, Illinois, who's still living but retired, wrote this, The grand and terrible lesson of Israel's history is that it is possible to begin well and end poorly. In fact, this tragic human tendency dominates much of human spiritual experience. The Israelites began well. They they began well. They ended terribly in doubt and in disarray and in disgust and frustration, and they hardened their hearts. So now the writer back in Hebrews 3 moves from this warning of the past from Psalm 95 that they would have clearly understood all of the ramifications of it and he moves now to a direct warning to the church. Roman numeral 2, a direct warning to the church. Look what he says. After quoting Psalm 95 through verse 11, verse 12, he says now, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. His point is, it happened to them, don't let it happen to you. The first thing that he warns the church about is to recognize their vulnerability in their hearts. This is a, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And they're vulnerable in their hearts. Notice what he says in verse 12. Brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart. The first thing we want to worry about is to recognize our vulnerability to an evil heart. He's challenging the Hebrew believers. Do not, do not demonstrate an evil heart. 
I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to tell you about it, but I'm going to tell you that lately I have been so aware of how evil my own heart can be. Do you know that? I am a new creation in Christ. I am covered with the blood of Christ. My heart of stone has been softened. God is at work in us. And, and our sanctification is ongoing. I'm positioned in the heavenlies and established through my justification. But I'm telling you here on this earth, in this world, in this flesh, we have a great ability to be evil in our hearts, don't we? What does that mean? The idea is it's, it's a rebellious heart. It's a heart that, that allows sin to fester. It's an evil heart, a heart that does not close out sin. It embraces sin. The psalmist, the psalmist reminded us of this ability that we have in our heart when he said, if I, if I cherished, the NIV says, I think the King James says, if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the NIV says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord won't even hear my prayers. And so he's warning the believers, you have an ability to have an evil, sinful heart. Watch it, goes on then to say, to guard against an unbelieving heart. Look what he says, verse 12 again. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart or a heart with sin in it or of unbelief, a heart of unbelief. Number two, an unbelieving heart is a heart that lacks faith, a heart that stops believing that God is who he says he is. It's a heart that can... That, can, that demonstrates in front of him all of the blessings of God and can still turn away from it, saying, I don't think, I don't think God is going to answer my prayer. I've been living for Christ for 13 years, and God hasn't answered my prayer. It's a heart that begins to doubt the promises of God. You want me to believe that? You've told me that? I've been living like that for 13 years, and I'm tired. And you allow unbelief to begin to creep in, a lack of faith. Thirdly, it allows you then to move, to wander away. Look at an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, to walk away from God. That phrase there, departing from, is where we, the Greek word there, we get our English word apostasize or apostasy, a falling away, turning away from what we know to be true. And so there's a wandering heart. Sin allowed to fester in the heart causes us to doubt and to lack faith, which leads to an unbelieving heart, which then allows me to make decisions in the flesh outside of the will of God. And now I begin to wander away from God. And he's warning them, don't do that. That's what they did in Israel. They had the demonstration of the power of God right in front of them. And they chose not to believe his promises. They doubted it. I had a man come to me some years ago and he said, I'm done. I'm done. I said, what do you mean you're done? He said, I'm leaving my wife and my family. I got a girlfriend in the city and I'm getting married and I'm done with my old life. And what surprised me about this was that it was a, a mature man who had, was in his early 50s and he, he had walked with Christ all of his life and he had cared about the church and cared about the word of God and he was done. And he explained to me all of the reasons why he had good reasons to do this. He was sick and tired of, of all of the things that did not live up to what he expected to be God's blessing in his life. And I'm tired of it. 
You see, that's an unbelieving heart. That's a heart that stops living by faith. That's a heart that has begun to harbor sin and it begins to fester. And then he says, I'm out of here. And he wanders and ultimately you have to harden your heart. The fourth heart is a hardened heart. Look what he says in 13. But rather exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness. In verse 15, he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You see, sin comes in like a worm, boring in. It lays its slimy larva and it begins to reproduce itself. And sin leads to doubt and unbelief. And unbelief causes a questioning of my faith, a questioning of the love and grace of God in my life. Is God really going to follow through with his end of the deal? I don't know. I've been trying to be faithful all these years, and now I have this opportunity at hand right here, and it's too good to pass. And it's the worst decision you ever made in your life because you've hardened your heart now of what you know to be God's will and his pathway to his blessing. You just give up on God. So that's the first warning to the church is to recognize our vulnerability of having an evil, unbelieving, wandering, hardened heart. Secondly, you need to recognize that we need to respond to accountability. We need to respond to accountability. Look what his answer is to it. In verse 13, he exhorts them, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. See, one of the reasons I believe he's writing to a church of believers is because you don't challenge non-believers to exhort one another daily. That's church talk. That's believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, holding one another accountable for the tendency of our ability to distort reality in our walk with God and begin to think that Egypt is attractive. There was nothing attractive about Egypt. It was a complete distortion in the minds of the Israelites that was brought on by sin festering into an unbelieving, doubting, faithless heart. And so we must respond to accountability. Exhort means to strongly encourage or to urge. You see, he's he's applying this to the church community here. You need to watch out. This can happen to you. See, the whole point of the text is it happened to them. Be careful it doesn't happen to you. And to keep it from happening to you, you need to exhort one another daily. I just sat back from that phrase and I listed three things that I think popped out from that. Number one, this is a reminder, isn't it, that the Christian life was never intended to be lived in isolation. This is a reminder that the Christian life was never intended to be lived in isolation. You see, it's when we're alone. We're trucking far across the country by ourselves, across the desert somewhere. We're, we're in a deep, dark place somewhere by ourselves and depressed. That's when distortion of reality takes place. That's when we begin to doubt the promises of God. That's when we begin to doubt the love of God. That's when we begin to allow things to come into our imagination and into our hearts that begin to grow and grow and take us places we never thought we would go. He says, look, the Christian life is a community of people and you are to exhort one another daily. That's a reminder of A, church membership and regular church attendance. We'll save that for another day, but if you're going to do this daily, you better be with people. You better be around believers on a regular basis. Secondly, this demands that we maintain a heart of humility, doesn't it? 
If we're going to exhort one another daily about the condition of our hearts, and that's what he's saying, then we have to know one another well enough to be able to look at my brother in the eyes and say, man, something's not right with you today. In fact, I've been watching you, and I remember a day when you weren't like you are today, and I want to exhort you to turn around. And if you don't have a heart of humility, how do you respond to somebody getting into your spiritual business? I'll tell you how you respond. The fangs come out, the fangs come out, the claws come out, and you retaliate with harsh words, don't you? Mind your own stinking business. Who do you think you are? The spiritual cop of our church? Well, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. I do. And you are too. And our job is to exhort one another daily, knowing that an evil and unbelieving heart can cause us to depart from the living God, and we don't want that to happen. It happened to them. We don't want it to happen to us. And so we have this, res- this response of, of being accountable to one another. We're not to live in isolation. It demands that we maintain a heart of humility. Thirdly, this requires a deep personal conviction that we need brothers and sisters in Christ to speak into our lives, A, regularly, do it, look what he says, exhort one another daily, that's regularly, letter A. It has to be honestly, letter B, truthfully, we're dealing here with reality, This is what's really going on. Let's deal with it. Letter C, it needs to be lovingly and gently, Galatians 6 tells us. That's why we have to love one another deeply so that we can exhort one another on a daily basis to guard our hearts. Thirdly, I want you to see that we have to realize our responsibility. We recognize our vulnerability to an evil, unbelieving heart We recognize that we have an accountability to exhort one another regularly. Let her see we realize our responsibility now, verses 14 and 15. Look what he says. He kind of puts it on them. Let's read verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. You know the guy I just told you that told me he was done and walked away? Start a new life? Do you think he's a believer? You think he's born again? I don't know. I don't know, but there's a big question mark when you harden your heart and you take a hiatus and walk away from God. I mean, we have a New Testament picture of this, don't we, in the prodigal son. The prodigal son loathed his father's oversight. He sneers at his father, says, I wish you would die. Give me my inheritance. Goes off and lives The King James says, in riotous living, spends it all, comes to his senses when he sucks up his nose one day trying to eat out of a hog trough some of the slop and starts choking himself to death, basically. Comes to his senses, walks... I added that little detail, not the Bible. (laughs) And he walks home and his father is where his father runs to him, doesn't he? He took a big, long, wandering loop because of hardness of heart. And he didn't have anybody. He didn't listen to exhortation. And he wasn't humble. And he didn't keep a steadfast faith. But he came back, didn't he? I don't think he lost his salvation. He was still his father's son. But he's telling, listen, this idea of persevering in your walk with Christ is one of the evidences that gives you confidence. I will not give up on Christ. It gives you confidence that you are in Christ. Keep a steadfast faith. Verse 14, keep a soft heart. Look what he says. 
Verse 15, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's telling them, you need to do this. You need to not have a hard heart. It's your responsibility. Soften your heart. So he's fitting with our title of what I said. He's cleared their minds of the reality that Christ is greater than Moses. And if people following Moses harden their hearts, how much worse would it be for people to follow Christ to harden their hearts? Let's clear our minds. Christ is greater than Moses. Let's soften our hearts. Let's not give in to hard-heartedness. And let's keep living by faith. Don't repeat history. And he ends by going back to the people in the desert, verses 16 through 18. And it's three questions, each one answered by a question. So it's six, six questions total, three couplets of questions, verse 16. Question number one, for who, having heard, rebelled? Who was it that, having heard, rebelled? Well, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? You know who they were. It was the people who came out of Egypt, and they rebelled. Verse 17, second question. Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Question that answers it. Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? You see, God disciplined them. They went right up to the edge of entering into the rest of God, the peace and the plan of God to enter Canaan. And they turned and they wandered for 40 years because of hardness of heart. He said, okay, you can just drop that in the desert and we'll let the next generation go in and fulfill what you did not fulfill. So there's pile of rocks, graves all over the desert. Third question, number 18, verse 18. And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? He answers the question in the same question. But to those who did not obey, those who were disobedience, those are the ones who did not enter his rest disobedience will keep you from the blessing of God in your life. You know, I know and talk with regularly a lot of people who are not satisfied with their Christian life. They've had far greater expectations for what Christ could do for them and what they thought it was going to be to enter into the Christian life and walk. But they have never entered into this rest. We're going to talk more about that next time. But the idea here is what? The idea is that they have doubted and they have... They have harbored sin in their heart and they have borderlined on unbelief or entered into unbelief and then they've wandered away and then you expect the blessing of God. It's not going to happen. They never experienced the blessing that God had prepared for them because of doubt and disbelief that then ended, ended in disobedience and death. Verse 19, he ends, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Listen, you only enter into the blessing of God by keeping your faith in Christ. The Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is going to talk a lot about faith later in the book and show them what it means to live by faith and not by sight because of these very problems. You've got to live by faith. You can't live by sight. He's even going to tell them in Hebrews eleven six that it is impossible to please God apart from a heart of faith. You can't come to God or please God apart from a heart of faith. In conclusion, I think that one of the things we can get out of this passage and what I got out of it is that we all need to live with a bit of a sanctified worry, don't we? I need to have a sense of sanctified worry in my life. Number one, the point of the passage, if it could happen to them, it can happen to me, to Israel and to the church. If it could happen to them in the desert and all of the material ways that God showed himself to them and they still doubted, don't we do the same thing? I mean, who has been blessed more than we have? And we still continue to wonder if God is really blessing us. Shame on us. Secondly, 
I am vulnerable to unbelief and weak faith. This can happen to me. I am vulnerable to doubting. I am vulnerable to questioning. I am vulnerable to wondering if Jesus is really worth it. It can happen to me. The writer of Hebrews is telling them, don't let that happen. You will regret that. Stay with it. Walk by faith. You will enter into his rest. It is worth it. Number three, clearly in this passage, we've been reminded that God disciplines hardness of heart. God disciplines hardness of heart. He did for them, for sure. He did to the church at Corinth. Because of their sinfulness and disobedience, he said to them, and their abuse even of the communion table was, some of you are sick, physically sick, and some of you have fallen asleep. You've had people in your church die because God has disciplined them because of their evil, unbelieving heart. A strategic word to go home with today. Verse 15, today, if you will hear his voice, Listen, it's possible that you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never been to the cross and and ask God to forgive you of your sin and let the blood of Christ cleanse you from all sin. Today is your day to be saved. Believer in Christ, stop doubting. Today is the day to enter in and embrace a walk of faith. Today is the day. Not tomorrow, not next week. Don't mess around this week. Had a guy tell me that not too long ago. I'm going to decide by the end of the week whether I'm going to live for Jesus or not. You don't do that. Today's the day. Today's the day. So, do you really believe that your heart can become hard? I do, and I worry about my heart all the time. So by God's grace, let's keep our eyes on Christ. Let's learn from the past, lest we we repeat the past. And so the writer of Hebrews closes out chapter 3 to remind them that the blessing of God is not attained by unbelief, but only by belief, by following through in faith. Let's stand and let's close in prayer together. And so, Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your good hand upon us, your grace and your mercy, Lord. You've been good to us. And, Father, I just pray that you would help us to examine our hearts today. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today, and we would admit our hardness of heart. We would get rid of the sin, stop the doubting, and walk by faith. Encourage us, I pray, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit as we go from this place. Help us to walk in the truth this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.